Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan in Felucy Nalpathanshu. The Association of American Medical Colleges projects a shortage of up to 48,000 primary care physicians by 2034. Primary care comprises family medicine, general pediatric medicine, internal medicine, and geriatric care. This hour of where we live, we take a deep dive into why primary care is the barometer of the healthcare system and how the changing practice landscape is affecting both doctors and patients. Later in the hour, we'll hear from two new primary care doctors about their choice to pursue the field and the head of the primary care internal medicine residency at Yale School of Medicine about what Yale's doing to get more graduates attracted to primary care. But now, we're joined by Timothy Hoff, Professor of Management and Health Policy at Northeastern University. Also, an Associate Fellow at the University of Oxford. Hoff is the author of Searching for the Family Doctor, Primary Care on the Brink, published this March. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Timothy Hoff. Thank you uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations. I believe it's your third book on primary care, uh, Searching for the Family Doctor. Now, would you read aloud a passage from it for us? Sure. Uh, This comes from the start of the book. There is a fight going on for the soul of not only American healthcare, but healthcare everywhere. Primary care is at the center of this struggle, the essence of which is the unresolved tension between two different goals. One goal is a fair, empathic, and highly relational care delivery system built around primary care and trusting relationships between doctors and patients. Another goal is a more efficient, convenient, and highly transactional care delivery system more impersonal and built on algorithms, healthcare corporations, and technology. The former needs family doctors to succeed. The latter probably does not, relying instead on business thinking, scale, cheaper labor, and technology. Why should we be interested in this struggle and who wins? As family doctors go, so may go other types of doctors, along with the notion of a healthcare delivery system with the physician-patient relationship and physician expertise at its core. The ideal of a comprehensive or generalist doctor who can manage our care and needs holistically could vanish. These types of doctors and the primary care medicine they practice are eminently important for all of us to lead longer, happier, and healthier lives. The kind of medicine family doctors dispense is focused on preventing disease, keeping individuals healthy, improving the health of communities, and taking care of health problems before they spiral into bigger problems. The best family doctor-patient relationships have high degrees of interpersonal trust, empathy, respect, and loyalty. These features have been shown over time to be vital to improving people's health. But it is not just the kind of medicine that counts. It is the human-to-human bonds that family doctors form with their patients, which positively impact patient care. It is the notion of healthcare as a humane enterprise typified not by decisions around what is most efficient and least costly, 
but rather around what is most caring and conducive to patient needs. And this is why the struggle is so important. Thank you for that. Now, are you implying that the the experience of a trustful relationship with the primary care a physician who offers care with empathy is at loggerheads with um, an efficiency-driven, technology-driven system of care delivery? Yes, I, I think it is. I, and I think, um, you know, there's an inevitable tension in all walks of our lives between, you know, doing things in a more relational way in terms of, you know, services we access, um, where the interactions with people count, uh, the human qualities count, um, and, you know, more of the things we might do in our lives that really rely more on speed, efficiency, um, access, quick access, convenience. And so while it's not an impossibly uh, difficult to solve necessarily tension, it it sort of is a natural tension. Um, it's hard to for a doctor to have a good, deep relationship long-term with the patient uh, if, you know, they're also responsible for, you know, sort of being on a treadmill and seeing lots of patients every day, seeing patients quickly, uh, using technology to get between them and the patients. So, yeah, it, it is it is a tension. It's not unresolvable necessarily, but it's there. Would you say some of this plays out into physician burnout and the reason why we see this looming shortage in primary care physicians? Absolutely. Uh, that's a great point. Um, I also study things like burnout among doctors. Uh, and the research shows that, um, you know, the causes of burnout for doctors, and in particular, primary care doctors, relate to things like, you know, patient care workloads that they can't control. You know, how many patients do they have to see every day? Uh, using the electronic health record uh, or technology too much in their everyday work, mm. uh, which then gets between them and their patients. At least they perceive that. Uh, and so a lot of this efficiency-focused, quality documentation-focused, uh, transactional-focused that increasingly primary care medicine is being pushed towards, certainly uh, if you look at all the research is a big driver of physician burnout and what we also call moral distress. You know, doctors just sort of wondering, um, you know, if they're ever going to be able to meet the ideal of what they trained for. Mm. What did your family doctor mean to you and to your community? Where I grew up, um, you know, we had a family doctor that we knew for a very long time uh, that my entire family went to. Uh, we had the same pediatrician that took care of, you know, all of us. Um, I was in a family with, you know, five children total. Um, so, you know, my parents knew these doctors, my parents trusted these doctors. You know, I saw firsthand growing up how important it was to have sort of a go-to group of physicians um, that also knew something about you so that you, when you went in, you know, they asked you about your your family and, and your background and what you were doing in your life. Um, and it just sort of made you trust them more. Mm. In your book, you write about Dr. Richard Rutland. Um, tell me about him. Yeah, so he was he was a 
a doctor that in doing the research for the book, um, <clears throat> I found when I was doing the historical research uh, at the Center for History and Family Medicine, uh, you know, I found all these letters, you know, thank you letters um, from patients, handwritten. And, you know, this was a doctor who worked in a rural part of Alabama for many years in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, he was the good housekeeping doctor of the year one year. Mm. Um, and, you know, he he really sort of aspired to the ideal of the true general practitioner, you know, someone who could try and do it all um, and, you know, worked for his patients as an advocate, uh, addressed health needs in the community, taught other doctors primary care. And then also pretty much was around 24-7, lived in the community he practiced in. And so, you know, reading through these letters, which are, are threaded throughout the book, um, and, and hearing the personal stories of how this doctor helped some of these patients was really touching. Here's one that particularly caught my attention. Um, you mentioned um, Dr. Rutland uh, was the uh, Good Housekeeping Physician of the Year, and this letter references that. Dear Dr. Rutland, congratulations on your retirement. You really deserve some time off. One of my first and best memories of you is August 23, 1968, when you delivered my son because Dr. Breitling was out of town. Another memory I'm very grateful for is all the years you were my dear mother's doctor. She was so proud of you when you won the Good Housekeeping Award. She cut out the article and showed it to everyone who came to see her. You always made her feel better and lifted her spirits, even in the last days when nothing medically would help her. Karen L. And it really goes to show, you know, the full spectrum of care. Now, that kind of relationship, you know, in today's environment where the continued acquisition of physician practices by hospital groups in Connecticut and elsewhere, and, you know, also the proliferation of urgent care centers, you know, where there are alternatives to going to see your physician because, uh, you know, there is just no appointment available. How was all that changing the dynamics of this relationship? Yeah, well, you know, at, at a big picture level, it, it fragments the ability for the primary care doctor to have a, a holistic relationship with their patient. You know, uh, we go to urgent care centers because they're convenient. And and look, there's problems with trying to get maybe into a primary care doctor's office. You can't get appointments when you want. They're, they're overcrowded. And sort of I get all that. But the choices then we make to go to urgent care centers and not see our regular doctor, uh, you know, those have consequences for how well that doctor ends up knowing us, knowing what our health problems are. Um, and really being able to have a continuous care relationship. So these more episodic places of care, while they've they've helped address access issues and timeliness and convenience issues for primary care, um, you know, they, they've undermined in some ways the, the relational elements of the primary care doctor-patient relationship. And, you know, in terms of the hospitals, you know, and big health systems, buying up more of the smaller primary care offices. I mean, the the issue there is that that makes the primary care doctor an employee of the larger system and, and the relationship moving forward with the patient really becomes the relationship between the health system and the or the hospital and the patient, not necessarily with the primary care doctor and the patient. So that that's the issue with sort of that consolidation that's going on. Mm. Now, 
Uh, is there any way uh, you think that in this uh, a practice landscape, technology can be an asset in delivering healthcare? With the acquisition of uh, one medical by Amazon, um, how do you see that playing out, and and what good can come from it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the technology used in the right way in healthcare can can actually potentially help. Uh, you know, strengthen in some ways the the doctor patient relationship, particularly in primary care. Right? Mm-hmm. We saw this during the pandemic. Right when when people could not get in to see their doctors face to face. Um, they were able to, you know, go on Zoom or some other platform and have telemedicine visits with their doctor. And and so that connect, you know, so technology in the best way can enable uh, busy primary care doctors to maintain relationships with patients they already know mm. um, because they can offer speed, they can offer convenience um, because maybe the doctor just can't get every patient in the door to see them on a regular basis. Mm. And so that really is the promise of technology um, in one big way for primary care and relational care. Um, it's thought of as really technology complementing what the primary care or family doctor does for their patients, not replacing it. And I think that's the big thing we need to keep in mind. Right. And how do you see Amazon um, changing the way primary care is delivered? Um, well, you know, these big technology companies and retail-oriented companies, you know, I wrote in an earlier book. I mean, we're, we're living in the consumerization of healthcare. Uh, it's, it's a sector that's no more immune from, from you know, the consumerization movement as any other sector. And what that means is is these big companies are going to come in and they're going to try and create efficiencies uh, and scale to to deliver services in a in a lower cost way, which isn't necessarily bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a company like Amazon, you know, getting involved in primary care uh, could yield some real positives, um, particularly in terms of, you know, companies like that being able knowing how to do things um, better uh, in terms of reaching customers that maybe the healthcare system simply you know does not know how to do as well um, and so that I think is the promise for for the that companies like that that are going to want to get involved in primary care but as we see with a lot of these big companies they get involved and they realize it's much more difficult than they thought it would be. <laughs> Now, talking about barriers to entry for people in this field, you write that the poor reimbursement rate for primary care physicians compared to specialty care is one of the reasons why more people don't want to get into primary care. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's there's the macro issues that revolve around the system, mm. you know, that, that prevent medical students and young doctors from wanting to pursue primary care, you know, jobs. And, and those those system issues are things like inadequate reimbursement for primary care. I mean, primary care is undervalued and underpaid for in this country. Uh, it's not in other countries that that build their their systems around primary care for, but for us it is because we're built around specialty care. Mm. So you know, you take you take a set of services that aren't well paid for. Uh, they're going to necessarily then be undervalued. Um, that means the doctors doing that work are going to be paid less which also is going to convince more maybe younger medical students, hey, you know, I'm, do- I'm doing all this to become a doctor and, and you know, I'm going to make this much less than somebody else um, and I'm, I'm supposed to be doing a very important job. Uh, 
And then the other issue is it's a really hard job to do well. Um, you know, being a, a full-fledged primary care physician where you're taking care of, you know, a panel of 2,000 or 2,500 patients longitudinally, that's a really hard job. Uh, even with technology and even with sort of the modern ways of, of innovations that we can bring into play here. And so, you know, a lot of young doctors and medical students, they see how tough the job is to do right. Uh, and it, it can it can be scary. So I think all those sort of things combined uh, make it, you know, a field where, you know, physicians, you know, young physicians and medical students just simply don't flock to as much as they do to other specialties. And, and that's a real problem. Now, the Affordable Care Act increased uh, Medicaid uh, reimbursement rates for primary care services in 2013 and 14. And in 2020, uh, Medicare reimbursement rates increased uh, for primary care for the first time since the 1990s. Now, do we have any evidence that these policy measures worked in attracting more people to the field? Uh, not from not from what I know. I mean, there might there might be research out there, but you know, the numbers each year, for example, of, of students choosing family medicine, for example, the numbers have not gotten any better. Um, and, you know, so it, it remains an ongoing problem. And um, I, I think as much as the reimbursement now, the issue is really just the lifestyle uh, and how challenging the job looks mm. to younger medical students. And so um, that also combines with, you know, the payment issue to really create a lot of disincentives for people to choose the field. Tim, talking about medical students, I mean, what can primary care residency programs at medical uh, schools do to attract more students into this field? Uh, reinvent how they look at primary care, reinvent how they present primary care and family medicine to young students. Um, most medical schools, you know, traditionally have not cared very much about turning their students into primary care doctors or family doctors. Uh, and if that doesn't change, then this problem will continue. So, you know, you need real leadership in these medical schools. Uh, you need new models of training family, uh, young medical students, you know, like, like Kaiser Permanente, you know, big hospital systems, creating their own medical schools and emphasizing primary care in the training of medical students mm -hmm. uh, so that they can turn out more of these doctors. But there really needs to be a sea change in how medical schools perceive the whole practice and field of primary care and and communicate that, get young students excited about wanting to choose this field rather than sort of conveying the notion of, hey, be a specialist. Don't go into this field. Timothy Hoff, professor of management and health policy at Northeastern University and author of Searching for the Family Doctor, Primary Care on the Brink. Tim, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up next, we hear how the Yale School of Medicine is attracting medical students to primary care. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Sujata Srinivasan in for Lucy Nalpotential. We'll be back after this break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan in Felucy Nelpotentio. Today, we are talking about the shortage of primary care providers. Enrollments at primary care residency programs at medical schools in Connecticut have at best held steady. At UConn, between 40 to 50% of graduates from the School of Medicine typically enter primary care residencies. In 2022, that number dropped to 26%. UConn offers loans at 1% interest rate as long as graduating doctors practice in family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, or geriatrics in Connecticut. The Quinnipiac School of Medicine had 39 students in both 2020 and 2021 who chose to specialize in primary care. That number rose by one student this year. We're joined by Dr. John Moriarty, Program Director of the Primary Care Internal Medicine Residency at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Moriarty, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. I understand that enrollments have held steady at the Yale program, about 18 primary care residents a year, but the numbers haven't really gone up. Why aren't students excited about primary care? Yeah, you know, Sujata, I think it's a very interesting question. Um, you know, one of the things that we have learned about is that oftentimes uh, students will be taking a look at current models of primary care, uh, a lot of which are in a fee-for-service model where primary care providers need to see, you know, upwards of four patients over the course of an hour uh, for, you know, eight to 10 half, eight to 10 half days a week. And they see that model uh, and have concerns about, are they going to be able to number one, develop the longitudinal relationships uh, and depth of relationships they would like with their patients. Mm. uh, And is it going to lead to burnout um, given the, the churn of seeing multiple patients over the course of a day. Right. And and you bring up the longitudinal relationship component of uh, primary care, but also in terms of patient outcomes. Is there a difference between outcomes, you know, from a value-based model, which is more population-based versus a uh, fee-for-service model, which is, you know, based on the volume of patients uh, seen and reimbursed? Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that are attractive about value-based care. Um, Certainly one of them being the focus on a population health of patients, not just simply the patient that's in front of you in the clinic, but thinking more broadly about your entire patient population, using data uh, to really guide your care, uh, and using data as well to guide the type of care that you're providing, understanding that that care might not just be a single in-person visit, 
Uh, it might be a telehealth visit. It might be a group visit. It might be a visit that involves a health coach focusing on nutrition or health prevention or other aspects of care. Right. So that would deal with populations um, who might be at risk for diabetes, the prediabetes, the people who are building up you know, to a cardiac risk and so forth. Correct. Now, uh, given the shortage, you know, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC, prior to the pandemic in 2019, 35% of survey respondents said they or someone they knew had trouble finding a doctor in the past year or so. That's a 10-point increase from when the question was asked in 2015. Now, what's Yale doing to help attract more medical graduates to the primary care residency program? Yeah, so one of the things that we are one of the things that we're focusing on uh, is looking at the experience of the graduates within the residency training program. You know, it's interesting if you look at data from primary care internal medicine residencies. Uh, only about slightly over half, about 57% of graduates of primary care residency training programs actually go into primary care. Uh, if you look at categorical internal medicine programs, their numbers are about 20%. So really part of the goal should be focusing on uh, enhancing the residency education so that more residents are interested in careers in primary care through the exposures they have uh, in residency. Um, Some of the things that we've been doing in our residency training program to really try to enhance the experience of residents and interest and engagement in primary care uh, have included exposing them Uh, to other care practices besides the residency continuity clinic. Uh, The residency continuity clinic is often uh, in internal medicine residencies, a hospital-based clinic often cares for a biopsychosocial complex patient care uh, population, often uh, with not a lot of resources. Uh, So in our residency training program, we have allowed residents time to go out to see other practices uh, within the state, uh, actually even within the country, uh, and also expose them as much as we can to alternative models of primary care, like value-based models. And I think this has excited a lot of our residents to really kind of think about uh, what futures in primary care look like, uh, and then also educate them on how to be leaders uh, and agents of change so that they can really advocate uh, for change in the healthcare system it will lead to better outcomes and better experiences for residents in primary care. Uh, would you elaborate a little bit more about the value-based model and uh, what exactly do your residents get to experience when they are exposed to working at organizations that provide this kind of service to patients? So back in 2016, uh, one of our core faculty members, uh, Dr. Bradley Richards, Um, started to develop a curriculum looking kind of at healthcare financing uh, and looking at models uh, of primary care. And he started uh, an elective experience for our residents, a two-week elective, which we called the Innovations Elective, uh, where during that two-week period, residents would have some, you know, content and classwork looking at healthcare financing and understanding models of care, uh, and then get to meet with leaders uh, of novel, innovative practices such as Iora Health, such as Caremore, mm. uh, such as Oak Street, uh, and even get to visit these sites uh, and understand what these new models of care look like and how they organize care differently from a fee-for-service model, uh, incorporated uh, aspects of care like health coaches, 
uh, more effectively using uh, advanced practice providers uh, and thinking about how to use uh, embedded mental health as well in a primary care practice. Mm. I'd uh, love to bring in Dr. Eva Zimmerman into the conversation now. She'll start working as a primary care physician in October at the Internal Medicine Associates uh, of Westport right here in Connecticut. And she was one of your students um, at the Yale residency program. So, Dr. Zimmerman, uh, what is your response um, to the way the primary care practice landscape is uh, changing? I mean, what what are you passionate about? But also, what are your concerns? Yeah, I was... um fortunate enough to be a a member of the, a resident of the Yale primary care program and have the opportunity to be kind of exposed in the forefront of this changing landscape of primary care. So I feel very fortunate and lucky and that definitely determined kind of where I ended up in my job at Internal Medicine um, Associates of Westport. Um, I was also fortunate enough to have a family member, my father, be a primary care doctor back in Buffalo. So I got to see kind of the inner workings of an autonomous physician and what that was like in private practice Mm -hmm. and also kind of see over the last uh, 10 or so years the, you know, relative corporization of medicine and smaller practices being bought up by larger healthcare organizations and physicians losing a lot of autonomy. So kind of with my training at Yale, as well as my background uh, with my dad's small private practice, I had a sense of what I wanted to do in primary care and what I wanted it to look like. I definitely wanted a job that could incorporate the key components of primary care, longitudinal relationships with patients, Mm coordination of care, also uh, quarterbacking care and, you know, communicating with consultants, but also not be in one of these situations where I would feel like I was churning out patients, not being able to spend enough time with my patients, because that's something that I know is key to better healthcare outcomes, better patient satisfaction, and um, just overall also doctor satisfaction um, at the end of the day. Now, with the number of hospital acquisitions we've had in Connecticut and across the country of uh, physician-owned practices, how easy or difficult was it for you to find the right fit in this job? Um, We did get a lot of exposure at the Yale Primary Care Program to different models outside of just the resident continuity clinic, which was very helpful in tailoring what I wanted to do in my own practice. So having those opportunities kind of helped me hone, did I want a small practice or a large practice? Did I want um, to have a practice that incorporated uh, advanced practitioners and mental health? Um, Or did I want kind of more of this, a private practice where it's a couple of doctors and um, you're all kind of working together to to solve issues. And I also, um, being a graduate and with the low number of primary care doctors in the area, I was in high demand because I knew I wanted to go into primary care. Um, I ended up working with a recruiter who I told about the characteristics of the practice that I would like to work in. And the number of options that fit kind of my criteria for where I wanted to work were actually very limited. So while it was easy 
to find a job, the number of jobs that fit kind of the number or the bill were few and far between. So I feel very fortunate to have found the job that I did. Now, um, you're passionate, Dr. Zimmerman, about providing longitudinal care, um, but how does this fit in the urgent care model? We've seen a proliferation of urgent care centers across Connecticut and the country, and PCPs, as we all know, you know, can be booked well into a month out. So urgent care is becoming a substitute for some patients. So how does this play out? I think urgent care has helped to offload doctors um, when there's an urgent complaint that may not necessarily warrant an emergency room visit and maybe off hours to when the doctor is typically practicing. So I think there is a very specific role for urgent care, but high utilization of urgent care is in substitute for primary care offices um, is definitely something that is probably detrimental all around, not only to the doctor-patient relationship, but also to out- healthcare outcomes in general. Now, if you don't mind talking about your student debt, I mean, medical school is not inexpensive. And according to the AAMC, the average medical school debt was $200,000, and that's not including the undergraduate debt. So while making the decision to get into primary care, and you mentioned, you know, you come with so much energy, Dr. Zimmerman, you bring so much passion into this field. But in terms of money, was that a factor in your decision? Yeah, I think uh, student debt is definitely something that needs to be talked about, especially amongst those who work so hard to get where they want to be. And usually our journeys are upwards of 10 plus years. Um, I was fortunate that student debt didn't play into my ultimate decision, but it's certainly something that is coming up frequently for me and my colleagues in making decisions and what area to pursue. There are some programs that offer repayment of loans and a lot of jobs um, when you're signing on offer that as a perk or a bonus kind of as an incentive for you to work at that practice, even the smaller primary care practices are. I knew I wanted to do primary care from a very young age of 11, and I kind of stuck with that and didn't really let the financial payoff or burden uh, determine my decision to do that. But um, I can't say the same for a lot of my colleagues who may have chosen That's definitely a thought in the back of your mind when you're deciding kind of ultimately what I'm going to go into is, you know, over $300,000 of loans sometimes and and having to ultimately pay that off at some point. What is the landscape going to look like? You know, we have all of these aspects, the retirement of uh, physicians, the projected uh, shortage, uh, the the debt, medical school debt, the relatively low pay of primary care compared to other disciplines and so forth. So how do you see this playing out, um, Dr. Moriarty? Going back to uh, the AAMC uh, data, about 48,000 primary care physicians uh, expected shortage by 2034. And do you expect nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, filling some of the shortfall? What's going to play out? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's it's interesting. Um, so something clearly kind of needs to ch- change in how our systems broadly define invest in in primary care. And I think there are multiple ways to think about how to fill that 
to fill that gap of that 48,000. Um, and I think it's going to require multiple different approaches. Uh, you know, certainly one of those approaches is increase uh, the number of uh, primary care uh, residency training slots, uh, which has happened over time, uh, both in internal medicine and in family practice. Uh, and, you know, you probably would have to increase by about the number of slots by about 21% uh, to really get to this offload. Um, and that is certainly something that programs are starting to invest in. Um, you talk about uh, advanced practice, nurse practitioners, physician associates are also ways that can help fill the gap uh, in primary care. Uh, you know, I think one of the investments in really highly functioning primary care healthcare systems, uh, you know, involves physicians, um, advanced practice nurses and physicians assistants really kind of working together in a well-coordinated interprofessional team to care for populations of patients. Uh, and that really is, I think, what the future of primary care should look like. Uh, and then I think the larger investment needs to be in the investment in the, in the primary care health system. Uh, you know, we've already mentioned sort of consolidation of, of healthcare systems and hospital systems, uh, you know, buying up practices. And it would be nice to really see those healthcare systems start to invest in their models of care, um, start to move towards more value-based care options, which look at really quality of outcomes for populations of patients that really start to drive change uh, in the setting of doing things like incorporating embedded mental health care, uh, incorporating true interprofessional teams, uh, and really also learning how uh, our larger healthcare systems can really engage not only with patients, but also engage with their communities uh, to really advocate for better health uh, of their communities in a primary care landscape. And again, the hope is, you know, you mentioned the burnout challenge uh, and the increasing retirement age uh, of physicians. And if we don't, uh, you know, redesign our models of care so that they are models of care that students uh, are excited about entering into the experience early in their uh, career trajectory, positive models of primary care, um, and then incentivize it so that you know, either you can repay some of that debt or even uh, maybe pay primary care uh, a little more for the value that it can provide to individual patients and communities. Dr. John Moriarty, Program Director of the Primary Care Internal Medicine Residency at Yale School of Medicine. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And thanks to Dr. Zimmerman. She's beginning her career in primary care medicine at the Internal Medicine Associates of Westport. Good luck, Dr. Zimmerman. Thank you so much. Coming up, we hear from a primary care physician who graduated from the School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University in May, a recipient of the school's fellowship to study primary care. I'm Sujata Srinivasan in Felusi Nalpathanshu. This is where we live. We'll be back after this break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Srinivasan in Felusi Nalpathanshu. Today, we are talking about the shortage of primary care doctors. The Association of American Medical Colleges projects a shortage of up to 48,000 primary care physicians by 2034. Joining us now is Dr. Sheila Ekbali. She graduated from the School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University in May, receiving the Primary Care Fellowship. 
Iqbali is currently pursuing a family medicine residency at Greater Lawrence Family Health Center in Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Dr. Iqbali. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. What led you to medicine and to primary care? Thank you for asking that question. I have for a long time been really interested in medicine and, and healing, but specifically what led me to primary care was my experience as a teacher. So before medicine, I was a teacher for 12 years, um, teaching science at the high school level. And I worked with a lot of kids who had history of trauma and a lot of life challenges um, that uh, really made me realize not only the social determinants that affect people's education, but also their health. Um, and one of the other things that happened as a result of this experience working with kids with a history of trauma was that I was working with the same kids up to three years in a row. And, and as a result of it, I was able to really build strong relationships. And sometimes I noticed it would take an entire year to build trust and have you know, the kids be willing to listen to me and take my advice and you know, trust themselves and build confidence and so forth. And having that long-term relationship really made a difference in being able to help them thrive both academically, but also, you know, teaching them about nutrition and exercise and things like that. So also in terms of their health. Now, are you uh, confident that you'd be able to spend time with your patients, given, uh, you know, the heart of this uh, is the need to build a longitudinal relationship and given the changing landscape, practice landscape? I think that uh, one of the things I did before I applied to medical school, I spoke to my own primary care physician and I, and I asked the same question. I said, do you feel like you can spend enough time with your patients? And, um, you know, and I think what she said to me was that I do what I need to do and it works out. And essentially, you know, we, we have a system that doesn't always work with us. It doesn't always um, set up uh, enough time for us to see patients, but we also have the flexibility to push back. It's, this is definitely a challenge that I think healthcare systems face, and both in terms of the amount of time we have with patients, uh, to be able to push back to, to the system is one strategy, um, and another is to be in places that really value that continuity. Um, so where I'm at right now, it's a federally qualified healthcare center, and we um, one of the strengths of, of these uh, FQHCs is that we have a holistic approach to healthcare. We provide a lot of different services, um, including social services and, and behavioral services, and we are really able to follow our patients for a long time. And there are actually benefits in the outcomes, and patients do better um, than in other settings. So. Uh, I think that it really is a matter of seeing the, these work, these types of systems work, and then expanding it into other places and other spaces. And you received a fellowship uh, from Quinnipiac Medical School to do a primary care program. I'm uh, assuming that you don't have medical school debt, but if you did, would you have chosen a higher paying, you know, different medical field perhaps? Oh, you know, I... I wouldn't have. I have a little bit of debt, but not very much. And I'm very grateful for this incredible, incredible opportunity to have my tuition paid for. Um, but I had decided to go into primary care to family medicine prior to receiving this fellowship. And for me, coming from teaching, um, I feel that making $200,000, if you're making that much um, and you're not making $500,000, that's still a lot of money. So I, I don't really feel that the salary is... Um, really something that would have changed my mind. Um, and it's not really something um, 
that I have heard so much from my peers either. Mm. And given that you practice right now at a federally qualified health center in the family medicine area, that does not require malpractice insurance should you want to practice there in the future. That's correct. Yeah, I actually just learned that last week, which was super exciting um, because I'm interested in full spectrum family medicine, which includes adult medicine, pediatrics and um, providing care for pregnant patients, obstetrics. Um, and sometimes that can be quite a bit more malpractice insurance. But if you're working through FQHC, the federal government really provides that protection. I understand that you have other experiences that made you gravitate towards primary care, including your own health challenges. Uh, Could you talk Mm -hmm. about some of the um, experiences leading to this field? Yeah, so I think that part of um, my own experience that made me want to Uh, go to primary care was that I had a lot of different symptoms and had a really hard time getting a diagnosis. It took me about 20 years to get a diagnosis. And I actually, I sort of diagnosed myself first and then um, asked for the um, proper um, assessments that led to the actual official diagnosis. Um, And throughout the whole process, I realized I was going to a lot of specialists and everybody was seeing just a piece of the problem and not really putting it together. And what I really wanted was somebody who would put all the pieces together and solve the problem. And I really feel that primary care is a space where you can solve really complex problems. You can make massive changes in people's lives by being able to identify um, sometimes rare and sometimes just difficult to diagnose and complex health issues that might present in many different ways. Um, And I feel that I'm going to have tons of opportunities to do that. I'm sorry you had to go through what you did. I understand that um, you are also a dancer. Tell me more. (laughs) Um, Would you have the time for dance in your medical career? I have danced for so long, and I didn't really dance very much at all during medical school, partly because... Um, I was sort of away from my base of where I do dance. Now that I'm sort of back in my space and my community, um, you know, people sometimes go to the gym as a way to um, not just exercise and be healthy, but also sort of for mental well-being. Um, For me, dance is that. Right. And the creativity in dance to experiment, perhaps there are parallels in medicine, too, that you bring that creativity in the diagnostic process, that there's an art and science to primary care. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, I've done, I do Iranian dance. And part of what I have done is I traveled throughout um, Iran. I've done several trips where I go to rural areas and I gather dance and music and try to understand the cultural background behind the the dances. and in doing so, I also saw a lot of health issues that were um, sort of prominent and lack of access to health care. Uh, and one of the things I realized is how much um, wellness can come through dance and how these two can be so related. And and again, you know, like you said, there's that sort of creativity and thinking about so many different things at the same time, which is a skill that comes from choreography and other things that I've done for many years that transfers right right into medicine. You know, in terms of uh, medical school preparation, uh, what was effective for you? I mean, did uh, Quinnipiac Medical School expose you to the kind of practices that you wanted to get into, where you could build a long-term relationship with patients versus that fee-based model where you you see a set number of patients Mm -hmm. within a set amount of uh, time uh, 
for yeah. reimbursement purposes. Where I'm at right now, we do have value-based care um, because we're one of the pilot sites. But I did work with a family physician in Hamden who had a lot of patients for many, many years. And certainly seeing him work with the same people over so many years and know their stories and know their challenges was very inspiring and um, and to see how he was able to help them more just because he had those relationships was definitely something that um, left an impression on me and I wanted to have that experience. Now, as a teacher, you said you were excited working with, uh, you know, children that uh, came in from backgrounds, um, undergone trauma. I mean, did you um, work with them long enough to see a change uh, in their outcomes? And um, how do you think that would play out in your own career as a doctor going forward? What's the big picture there? Yeah, I think sometimes we don't realize some of the influences that we have um, when we do have long-term relationships with uh, people. I was able to work with some of my students for up to three years. And, um, you know, in that time, I got to know them really well. And even now, even though years have passed, I still get text messages and Facebook messages and emails um, letting me know how uh, my students are doing and how they're progressing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone has their challenges, but I feel that having had some of those relationships certainly allowed some of my students to pick paths that um, brought their best selves forward and helped them flourish and um, and be successful. Um, you know, there's not always a success story, but um, I think that we can make a difference without, you know, we might not know that all the difference that we make. And I think medicine is the same way. Sometimes we say something or we, we just, you know, not and acknowledge somebody's pain and suffering. And we might not even be able to fix it, but that, that being in that space with them and being able to generate a safe space for them sometimes can be part of their healing process. Dr. Sheila Ekbali received a fellowship to do a primary care program at Quinnipiac University. She's now pursuing a family medicine residency at a federally qualified health center in Massachusetts. Dr. Ekbali, wishing you a long and fulfilling career. Thank you so, so much for having me. Have a wonderful day. I'm Sujata Shinivasan in Felusi Nalpatanshow. Talk show intern Meera Raju helped me produce today's show. Special thanks to Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening and be well.